0: Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karmateksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Jewel Ornament of Liberation, Chapter 8, by Lama Adam Berner. Lama Adam discusses taking refuge based on Chapter 8 of Tranga Ribashe's commentary on the Jewel Ornament of Liberation. Topics include What Faith Means in Buddhism, and how it is related to diligence in practice, details of the refuge ceremony, and the commitments of those who have taken refuge. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texam Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome, everyone. Um, good to see faces and if I can't see your face it's good to know you're here and uh, I'm glad that we can talk this morning about refuge it's a, a topic that you know is is almost seems uh, you know forgotten in its fundamentalness you know like we if you've taken refuge you do it every day in the morning and in the evening and maybe at other points throughout the day um, so it, it's something that I think we don't talk about specifically like this topic alone very often so um i want to uh say a refuge prayer and do a couple announcements but I, i'd actually like to start today with any questions just in case um cuz we'll go through the chapter from Gampo's uh jewel ornament on refuge um but i also kind of want to know if there's any questions people have right off the top about refuge that that we can address in the course of the talk itself so, um, in terms of the, the building, um, it's looking awesome, by the way. Uh, there's a second floor going up now. They, uh, they laid the beams. So, um, uh, I mean, that, that there's no floor yet, but the, all the beams are laid across the existing wall. So the second floor is starting to come into shape and there's pipes coming out of the ground for plumbing. So that's a little construction update. Really exciting. And, um, uh, so let's do the the four line refuge prayer, and after we do the refuge prayer, let's uh, let's just sit for for two or three minutes, and then we'll do some questions and we'll get started. So this will be the the four line refuge prayer in Tibetan. I'll say it three times. You can chant along at home, or if not, um, if you don't know it, you can join in in your heart with the aspiration that our time here today is a benefit to yourself and.
2: All sentient beings. Oh, san ye Sange sugi Chanju padu sugi Donju Padu danikatsu chi Let's just take um maybe two minutes and rest our attention on the breath
0: before
2: we begin.
1: Okay, thanks, everyone. So what I was saying earlier about how this is such a foundational topic that we tend to not think about it, it was only while we were doing the refuge prayer that it occurred to me like, oh, this is the topic today. (laughs) We just chanted the refuge prayer and that's what we're going to talk about. So um, what we said in Tibetan, um, just as a refresher, if you don't know, is to the Buddha, Dharma and Supreme Assembly, uh, I go for refuge until awakening. Through the merit of my performance of generosity and so forth, may I accomplish Buddhahood for the benefit of beings. So before we start, is there any um, any questions, um questions that I can kind of weave into the talk today? Does anyone have any specific questions about refuge or the ceremony or anything like that? We can get to them at the end, too, but I just thought I would try in the beginning as well. Yeah, Adam, I guess not a question specific to the reading, but um, does the Center plan on holding any ceremonies in light of the pandemic for those who still hope to take refuge, and do you recommend any uh, uh, preparation prior to it? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I can tell you right now, um, we uh, have been occasionally um, offering in the newsletter the opportunity for, for refuge, but the few times we've done it, it's been you know, completely outdoors, um, socially distanced, not a public event, you know, so that it's just for the people who need refuge. Um, so it, it's something we can do. If, if you're interested or you know someone who's interested, you can email me or Lama Cathy and we can, uh, see what we can arrange. Um, but it is, uh, you know, there, there are still opportunities for it, but it's kind of on, on demand at the moment. And, and of course, uh, you know, sticking completely with, you know, outdoors mast and all that stuff. So, um, as far as preparation, um, I think the most important thing would be to, to, uh, communicate with a teacher, you know, like be talking to, uh, Lama Kathy or Lama Tom or I, and, and, you know, we can put you on the right path, kind of see where you're at and, and go from there. Thank you. You're welcome. So, um, we are now in the I think this is the sixth or seventh class of this Genpopa, uh book uh, sort of orientation, and as you've already seen, this is a really detailed um, description of the path. The, the type of text it is is a lam rim text. Lam means path, and um, rim is stage. So this is like stages of the path. So this really guides you, um, you know, gives you everything you need to know along the way, and um, so this section that we're doing today with refuge is actually the beginning of a section uh uh titled developing an attitude towards bodhicitta and um, as you know we we talked about a couple obstacles that can arise and the things that are, are their antidotes such as um clinging to the pleasures of this life uh remaining involved in the pleasures of existence in general thinking that conditioned existence is a happy and pleasant state um, and being involved with the selfish type of peace. So these were things that we covered in previous chapters. The, the antidotes to those. Um, this section begins now. What we need uh, to cultivate bodhicitta, and and it's actually the um, the remedy to not knowing how to accomplish Buddhahood. Because um, even if we sort of did everything, um, if we only created white seeds of karma, good, good karma. Uh, without the knowledge of how to actually attain Buddhahood, we still couldn't do it. So this this is the, the uh, remedy to that. Um, and one of the things Tranga Rinpoche says here is, among all the means that one has to know in order to accomplish Buddhahood, the main point is the very pure motivation, the mentality of enlightenment, the wish to accomplish Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings, which is the precious Bodhicitta. And Bodhi means, um, awakening and Chitta is mind. So Bodhicitta is this mind of awakening. And I think I can say, at least for myself, I know, uh, I tended, I still kind of tend sometimes to compress that idea down into like, um, trying to benefit others. Like that's like sort of a quick little definition. Uh, and it's understandable how you can kind of get there, because if we think about the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha said that uh, suffering is a part of life and um, that suffering has a cause. And that cause is clinging or fixation to the self, um, which also becomes any kind of clinging or fixation. And since it has a cause, if we remove the cause, we can experience the cessation of suffering and that there is a path um, to achieve that cessation of suffering. So the, the, the cause there being the key, since uh, we know that we're experiencing suffering, we do experience suffering in, in samsara cyclic existence. So we want to somehow overcome that suffering. And so we need to remove its cause, which is this fixation on the self. So, um, that's sort of the big takeaway that, that we can work with from that is that attachment is a problem. And so and all dharma practice, whatever it is, exists in order to help us undo that attachment. So it's, sort of easy to see how we could end up at this, like, um, bodhicitta means benefiting others thing. And it's not wrong, but what it actually means is is the wish to attain supreme awakening ourselves so that we can benefit all sentient beings, put them in that same state. And I think that's important to remember for a couple of reasons. I mean, one of them is I think all of us have a tendency to uh, maybe overlook ourselves sometimes to our own detriment in our effort to benefit beings, you know, maybe we don't cultivate the same compassion for ourselves that we're trying to cultivate for others. But, you know, the, the compassion that we're trying to cultivate uh, perfect compassion, you know, is impartial, you know, so that does include us too. Um, so it's important to remember that this, this wish of Bodhicitta is this goal of attaining Buddhahood. You know, like we we want to attain Buddhahood, and the reason that that's important, and the reason that that is beneficial to others, is I mean, just look at the vast activity of these enlightened beings that we see in our world. You know, if we think about Kempakarta Riboche, uh His Holiness Karmapa, Tashi Tseringpoche, Dalai Lama, like all these people and the benefit that they can bring beings with just a look or the sound of their voice. You know, um, that comes from their attaining levels of realization you know so their ability to help beings is so much vaster than ours and so much more skillful because they've aspired to buddhahood for the benefit of beings so we can't just boil bodhicitta down to like oh i need to put everyone else before myself you know like it, it's this wish to attain buddhahood you know this this, this burning you know uh, good kind of desire this beneficial desire to attain buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. So we need to earnestly aspire to that state. And um, the means to accomplishing Buddhahood, as Trungpa Rinpoche said, the primary means is bodhicitta. So um, a lot of what we, we talk about moving forward from here is is related to something we'll get to at the end of this chapter. Um, they use an analogy, um, like if, if bodhicitta were a monarch, you know, and we were going to invite bodhicitta in, you would want to prepare the space, you know, properly. You know, you would want a space that was clean and well cared for and and well appointed. And this is kind of what we're trying to do with our own mind stream in order to welcome bodhicitta in um, properly. So hence the need for this, the content of this chapter, you know, which is uh, exploring the foundations for developing bodhicitta. And, um, so sometimes it, I think we probably all wonder sometimes why it's so hard to keep up our practice sometimes, you know, why it's so hard to, to do it every day, why it's so hard to do it for the amount of time we want to do it, why it's so hard to be consistent, why it's so hard sometimes to remember off the cushion to apply the antidotes and the proper aspirations and, part of the reason for that may be that we're not creating the proper foundation for our practice. Um there's so many methods and so many practices that we learn about but without the right foundation they're just it, it it's a lot harder to keep them up and have success. So um it's important to to think about these foundational things. So the first the three foundations he describes in here are uh the Mayana potential refuge in the Pra moksha vows so the Mahayana potential um, is this this potential to want to you know, attain awakening for the benefit of all beings rather than just for ourselves so it's this wider motivation and it, he breaks it into two um, two aspects and I'll read this section he says, when we speak about the potential, because uh, p- these two aspects are um, innate potential and awakened potential. And he says, when we speak about the potential that is not awakened or the potential that is awakened, the latter, meaning the the one that is not awakened, should not be seen to be out of reach or something of great profundity. The awakened potential just means that we don't have to rely on extraordinary causes and conditions to awaken it. It simply means that we start thinking in terms of wanting to achieve enlightenment. And wanting to practice the Dharma in order to achieve this. As soon as we start thinking in those terms, our potential is awakened. The awakening of that potential is not to be sought in any other way than just by the thought, I want to achieve Buddhahood. So this awakened potential, like a lot of times when we hear awakened, we're thinking, um, you know, like realization and full Buddhahood and things like that. But, but the, the two things we need, this innate potential we all have, we all equally have that. And then the awakened ch- potential, you know, he says here, like, all you have to do is make that wish, I want to be a Buddha, and you've awakened that potential. So having that wish is a very simple um, foundational thing to just to, to keep that wish, to think about it and, and keep it at the, the forefront of your mind. So, um, the second aspect that we get to here is, is refuge and, um, he says, uh, refuge is something that we will need all the time until we accomplish Buddhahood. And when we talk about refuge, it, it's, uh, you know, we do it like at the beginning of this session, we do it at the beginning of most of the practices we do. Um, it's something that when we first learn it, it's probably the word refuge, even we don't use that often. We don't think about that word frequently in this culture, you know. Um, but what's important to remember is that, uh, that, uh, we kind of do this all the time. We've been doing this practice of refuge for our whole life. We just may not have been conscious of it, you know, And, and, and we haven't been doing it very skillfully. So we are constantly, and what I mean is, um, when we find ourselves in situations, there's, there's very obvious situations, like, um, if we're sick. Or in danger, you know, we were looking for some kind of safety. We're looking for some kind of refuge. You can think of refuge as like as protection. You know, like an umbrella gives you refuge from the rain. So similarly, like we're looking for some kind of protection from suffering. Um, these these sufferings that we encounter. And like I said, there's obvious examples that are um, painful or scary or things like that. But here's these they're the same thing, just to a different degree as you know, being in an uncomfortable chair, you know, like we could seek refuge from having a chair that's too hard and the back's too straight, you know, like this is these simple ways that we find ourselves in discomfort. And then we try to find a way, you know, we may shift or we go to a different chair or whatever. So there's, there's all these different ways we're constantly trying to find refuge from some kind of suffering, no matter how broad or how, you know, simple and subtle it is. Um, we're constantly trying to find some kind of refuge. But what we've been doing is trying to do it with all these external means. And that's been our mistake. Like we've been constantly trying to go outside ourselves to find protection, um, from suffering. When if we think about what the Buddha taught, um, you know, the cause of suffering is this clinging or fixation, uh, particularly to the the idea of a self. So we should be trying to undo this attachment to the self rather than trying to undo everything in the external world that isn't exactly to our specifications which is kind of what we're always doing so um it's important to to know that we've been doing this you know like this idea of taking refuge in the three jewels the Buddha the Dharma and the Sangha is is a a shift it's a it's a big important shift for us but it's not like we should think it's a brand new activity. It's just we're doing it correctly. Like we're 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 correcting it and we're putting it. We're putting our um, our our faith in the right objects of refuge. We're in those objects. The reason that the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are the correct objects of refuge is because they are outside of samsara. The Buddha has transcended suffering. The Buddha has achieved fearlessness. Like um, he is not in the cycle of suffering. So the Buddha is um, potential realized, you know, and it's that same Buddha nature that we have. He actually, you know, actualized it. And and that's remarkable. And so that makes him a good source for us to have great appreciation and enthusiasm for. And um, so... I want to talk here too, he, he also mentions in terms of refuges, we'll get more into the Three Jewels as as the objects of refuge, but I don't want to skip this part. He talks about the cause refuge and the result refuge. And the cause refuge is kind of what we are doing in this life when we take refuge prayers and we think about where we're placing our refuge. Um, the things that we do that will be the cause of this result refuge and the result refuge is when we achieve the ultimate fruit he says like when we achieve the ultimate fruit it is the time when we achieve the transcendence of all forms of suffering it is the time of real refuge as perfect protection the ultimate form of refuge so attaining buddhahood you know becoming a buddha is the real refuge but we needed to cause that you know we need to create the causes for that and we do that by taking refuge in this life and thinking about things like that so um In fact, this cause refuge. She says at one point, if we try, if we try it, it is impossible not to succeed. And if we don't try, then there is no possibility to succeed. To succeed. Sorry. So that's that's. There's so many things in this chapter that are, I think, are really uh, motivational. You know, like for our practice. Like, you know, just just make the wish that you want to attain Buddhahood, and you've awakened that, you know, potential. Um, Just trying. And there's, you know, you will succeed at some point. And so he also says here, refuge is an entire chapter in this book and consists of nine points. And we're going to go, I may not go through all of these points in great detail because you all um, have the book and um, you can look it up. But um, to talk again about um, just the three jewels, um, like we'll jump into the object. Um, this is number three in the points. So, this is kind of, uh, why, why uh, are the, uh, the three jewels the proper source of refuge? And a lot of these points you'll see, they're divided into two aspects, and they're usually like the common and the special, um, aspects. And the common aspects are usually related with, uh, Hinayana, um, motivation, motivation to just benefit ourselves, and the special are for the most part, related to Mahayana um, motivation to benefit all beings. So, uh, the th- the refuge, the common refuges, he talks about are, are Buddha. Uh, he says the refuge in the Buddha who represents the very best realization and the very best possible purity arising from having eliminated all faults. Uh, refuge in the second object, which is the Dharma, the scriptures of the words of the Buddha, as well as the realization of the teaching. In the third object of refuge is the sangha, the sangha of ordinary beings, and the sangha of realized beings. These are the three jewels. Then the special refuge is in three parts. This becomes a little more, uh, a little more heady. The first objects, uh, are the objects abiding directly in front of us. The second is the object of direct realization, when an object is really understood. And the third is the ultimate object of refuge, suchness. So, uh, I don't want to go through all of these, but the uh, first thing he talks about is in terms of the Buddha. Uh, I really like this. Uh, he talks about faith in the Buddha, and he describes it as uh, very deep appreciation for what Buddha stands for, to acknowledge his great qualities for what they are. Once we acknowledge this, once we appreciate these qualities, we will have profound respect and great reverence for the Buddha. But more than that, we will have the aspiration to achieve the same things ourselves. And out of this aspiration, we will want to practice as intensively and strongly as we can. This will give rise to diligence. And once we have diligence, automatically understanding will arise. So in this case, the Buddha must be seen as the one who can generate in us a feeling of intensive faith, devotion, and aspiration to practice. So I like this because uh, I think Faith was one of the things I was most afraid of when I started getting in Buddhism because it seemed to me like it was maybe, uh, you know, asking for uh, nonsensical or a blind uh, allegiance to something. But, you know, what Trungpa Rinpoche says here about uh, developing very deep appreciation for what the Buddha stands for, you know, what the Buddha did and the potential that he uh, actualized through his work, you know, through his, his diligence is something that we we can also do. You know, we have the same raw materials, so to speak. So the faith that we generate in the Buddha is is in a sense a faith in our our own ability to do that. You know, he's the example. You know, like he's where we can end up. So part of you know the primary reason actually we we wanted to generate faith in the Buddha and also the Dharma and the Sangha is because it it's what creates this momentum. It's what gives us the motivation to keep doing our practice and move forward. So that's one of the ways that faith is so important is because it starts to put things into place where it it then makes logical sense to do your practice. It's not quite as, uh, you know, we're not just doing practice because we were told to or sometimes it feels nice. Like we start to see that like, oh, the Buddha had developed these qualities. I can do that too. And The more we think about that and the more appreciation we build, like Changa Rinpoche says, that gives rise to diligence. And diligence uh, is also sometimes translated as joyous effort. And I like that better because the joyous part is really key. You know, like we should, in these moments of exertion in our practice, uh, be trying our best to feel joy that we're doing the right thing. We're doing a good thing that's going to help us and is going to help other beings. We can take joy in the things we're doing. And and it's it's not only okay to, we should, you know, we should try to do that. So um, there are, um, you know, honestly, sometimes I fake, like sort of force myself to smile while I'm doing prostrations or stuff. If I'm not thinking about it, like I'll kind of force a smile. But if you ever force a smile, you notice, then it kind of starts happening naturally a little bit after that, you know? So if you can, in the course of doing your practice, like try to make yourself smile a little bit and feel the joy, like you'll start to come, you know, and you'll probably feel some of that joy. And then all the work becomes a whole lot easier because you realize you're, you know, it you're doing something that matters. You're doing something meaningful. You're doing something good. You're also starting to kind of just attach the feeling of uh, of a good result to the cause you're in the midst of creating. So, like, a lot of times when we're doing these practices, like we may be thinking more about what we're not doing, you know, whether that is uh, cleaning or watching more Netflix or whatever other things we do right now, um we may be thinking about those other things we prefer to be doing, which is really not thinking about um causes and and results properly, you know, like we're not thinking like when we say um the word in in uh, Tibetan for karma is lay. And in karma itself, uh, both uh, they have this sense of uh, action, including both the cause and the result. So it's this way of thinking about things we're doing that includes both what we're doing and what it will lead to. And, you know, if we were doing that more often, we would make a lot better choices. You know, like usually we kind of are focused on just what we're doing right now. But if we can start to think about the actual results of what we're doing, um, we can start to make better decisions and we can feel good when we make these decisions like to practice that require some exertion. You know, they require a little bit of discomfort. You know, they require to maybe they put us in a place that isn't our exactly ideal uh, situation. You know, then that's a lot of what Dharma is. We're trying to undo this attachment, you know, so we're going in the course of that. We're, of course, going to end up in these situations that we're not used to. They feel a little bit different. So a lot of this training is just realizing that um, that it's okay to do these things, and it's, in fact it's great to do these things, and we're so lucky to even be doing them. So, uh, so that was off of the point about um, faith in the Buddha. Uh, he also talks here about um, the second aspect of the object of refuge is the object of direct realization. It is the Buddha who possesses the nature of the three kayas, the one who is the dharmakaya, the sambhogakaya, and the nirmanakaya. The dharma of direct realization is the very nature of peace, the nature of what is beyond suffering, and this is nirvana. The sangha of direct realization are the realized bodhisattvas who are on the bodhisattva levels. This is the object of refuge in the light of direct realization. And then the third aspect is the ultimate object of refuge. Um, and this goes back to what was mentioned earlier about the result refuge. Ultimately, Buddhahood is the refuge. When one becomes a Buddha, it is real refuge. So refuge in the ultimate sense is becoming a Buddha oneself, referred to as the real refuge. Then there's a couple other points here about the time, the motivation. and again, the motivation we want to cultivate is this motivation to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. This vow can be taken and um, initially uh, was given in the Hinayana context. And in fact, the words that are recited in the refuge ceremony say for this life, uh, you know, until the end of this life. But the motivation we cultivate uh, carries that vow into future lives when we make this vast motivation to benefit beings. We, we, we do the, we take the vow with the intention to do it for, you know, until we achieve Buddhahood. Um, so the motivation, um, that we do the, this with is the, the Mayana motivation. And then in terms of the ceremony, um, again, this is, uh, is, is uh, certainly something that I would recommend everyone reads. So I'm definitely not touching on every point in here because I didn't want it to be just a dry laundry list kind of thing, but I'm, kind of picking out some points that I want to comment on. Um, but this is definitely, this talk should be considered a companion to what, what's in the book. Um, so in terms of the ceremony, um, it's important to both in, in an actual refuge vow ceremony, like taking the refuge vow from a preceptor, and also at home. Uh, this is an important thing to, to remember to do so uh, with meaning in the words, like really think about the meaning of the words. I have to catch myself on this, you know, every couple months or more frequently where I go, wait a minute, I'm just saying, I know the Tibetan syllables and I'm just spitting out Tibetan syllables and I'm not thinking about what I'm saying here. So it's really important to, to, you know, once you learn, since we're frequently we chant in Tibetan, once you learn the Tibetan, I think you'll find it becomes easy to also think the English while you're saying it. So. It's, it's an important reminder to, uh, when you say these things in Tibetan, you may not be able to do it for every puja you do when you're chanting for an hour, but the four line refuge prayer, you can think what you mean when you're saying it, you know. And when we say things like, I go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, like you can think about how you want that refuge, you know, how you need that refuge. You can think about the, the, the suffering that you and other beings are undergoing and ask for refuge in that light, you know, like with the idea that like you actually want that refuge and you need it, you know, like this is something, like we said, we've been doing some kind of refuge, probably incorrectly for most of our lives anyway. So um, we know we want this, you know, and we definitely want it to work. Like we never do it hoping it won't work. You know, we just have, unfortunately, have been doing it wrong a lot of the time. We've been um, seeking refuge in external uh, things, and we've also been, uh, taking actions that we think will bring us happiness, but are actually causes of suffering. Uh, whether it's because the happiness that we get is temporary or because the action we're taking is, is, uh, driven by self cherishing, driven by the attachment to the self. And when we react to something, um, like if we experience something that, that's, that we think is negative, external, something happens. Uh, we think it, it's negative. Um, we can react with self clinging or not. You know, it doesn't matter what's happening outside us. And in fact, I think there's a section in here where Changa Ribbish says how the whole world can be arrayed against us and we can still proceed on the path of Dharma. Nothing can stop us because this is a, this is a something that happens with our mind that we cultivate in our minds. So when something happens, we can look and see if we're acting with, um, Self-cherishing or with bodhicitta, you know, so, um, so the, uh, the idea of like doing, saying these things with meaning, um, is also related to this idea that like we need to undo this attachment. So part of doing that is this, you know, take these practices and really know what we're saying when we do it. And then the other thing is the vows that we take in a, uh, refuge ceremony, like the, the formal, with the preceptor, um, you know, when you begin the Buddhist path or day to day, it's important to remember that these vows are from an unbroken lineage. And that's one of the really special things that that we have and um, and that we have to be grateful for is like this lineage has come down from the Buddha. I mean, that's amazing. Like, that's amazing that he gave, you know, our teachers got it from their teachers who got it from their teachers and it goes all the way back to the Buddha. And there are uh, major world religions that whose lineages have, have been broken. And it's unfortunate, like because of persecution, you know, and things like that. Like it's happened, you know, and but it, we, we've made it, you know, like this, like Kagyu lineage has made it. And, and many Buddhist, you know, uh, faiths, have, have, their lineages remain unbroken. So when we take these vows, we may not be. Taking them, you know, our preceptor may not be the Shakyamuni Buddha sitting in front of us, you know, but, but that vow is his vow, you know, like the preceptor is, is the, the conduit to, to that vow, you know, and so when we take those vows and we retake them daily at home, there's, there's, uh, there's meaning in that. That means a lot. And so we need to be aware of it. Um, I could talk for a long time about all this stuff. I'm, I'm gonna have to pare down what I already prepared. So, um, so then we go into um, the three trainings, which if you've taken the refuge ceremony, this is what uh, is usually shared after the rep- repetition of the vows. And they're broken into three groups. Um, the first group pertains to the three jewels as a whole. The second set pertains to each of the three jewels specifically, and the third pertains to the extension of the three jewels, to things connected with the three jewels. So um, Rinpoche actually wants also describe these as uh, one set is related to practice I'm sorry wait one set is related to appropriateness one set is related to abstention and one set is related to practice so the first group as it's um presented here sometimes these are presented in a different order the first group as presented in um jewel ornament uh is uh the one related to the buddha is to make offerings and, uh he talks about why we make offerings in, in any, you know, any teacher, they always make this, they always say, you know, when we make offerings, we don't do it because the Buddha's thirsty or the Buddha likes nice, colorful fabrics, you know, like we do, we do these practices to help, uh, to increase our own enthusiasm, uh, to help build our own appreciation and, um, and to practice generosity to, to, you know, help to make this habit of being generous. And offerings is a practice that is, for me is a really special off the cushion practice. Like, I love um offering anything awesome. You know, like anything I see during my day, beautiful sunsets, great food. Um and this is a wonderful thing. Like and I and that's one of the ways I know that I'm doing okay in my practice is when throughout the day I think, oh, I want to offer that for the benefit of all sentient beings, you know. So that's a great thing to try to cultivate throughout your day is to try to, whenever you see or receive anything wonderful, to almost instinctually offer that to the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas so that you can attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. So offering is definitely something that is, is part of the general trainings in, in, in a formal sense, but this is something you can do throughout your day. Uh, the second training is to never forsake the three jewels. Um, and the third is to always keep the three jewels in mind. And, um, Rinpoche, when he would talk about those last two, um, he said them as be diligent in going for refuge in the mornings and evenings. That's sort of the specific way to never give up on the three jewels. And then the last one was to always keep the three jewels in mind. Rinpoche said, relying on holy beings, pursue the Dharma and conduct yourselves in accordance with it. Then the second set, <coughs> Are the, uh, specific trainings. So and these are the ones related to abstention. And, uh, they are having taking refuge in the Buddha. Do not take refuge in mundane deities. And that's, um, it's literal meaning, but it's also, you know, just don't take any refuge in anything that's not a proper source of refuge. You know, anything that's, that's of, you know, so of samsara is not going to be. Uh, able to help you transcend samsara. Rinpoche used to always use the analogy of, uh, like a prison cell. Like, if you're in a prison cell with somebody, you don't turn to the person next to you in the prison cell say, hey, get me out of here. You know, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta go to someone outside who can actually help you. So, um, the second one is having taken refuge in the Dharma, do not harm beings. And, um, related to that, Trungpa Rinpoche says, uh, Once someone has taken refuge in the Dharma, they should give up harming other beings. This may sound like a very difficult thing to do, but actually it isn't that hard because, as we said before, everything depends upon the quality of our motivation. Everything is a matter of the right way of thinking. That is the reason why if we take refuge in the Dharma, then automatically this will imply not harming other beings. And Granted, it's really tough for us to never, ever harm another being, and that's part of our karma, you know, like part of our karma is we are not fortunate enough to to be able to move through this existence and never harm anything. But we have to do our best, you know, with our decisions. And so one of the first things I think of whenever I read this is meat eating. And as Holiness Karmapa has said, it's best for us to try to reduce our meat consumption. So I think that is a good example of how we should approach not harming beings in the sense that he didn't say stop eating all meat and anytime you eat meat, feel really guilty about it. He said do your best to try to reduce consumption. So I, my personal advice is I think when you have a chance to do these things, like skipping a day of eating meat, you know, or picking a worm off of the sidewalk so that it doesn't get stepped on. You know what I mean? Like those are times when you're protecting life you know and that's a that is a good action that's a virtuous action so that rejoice in that you know what i mean like that's something you should you can feel good about you know and that and again feeling joy in doing that making the joyous effort to do that is you know helps to build this momentum so it's just another way to help reinforce these good actions um the next one was uh having taken refuge in the sangha um Oh, here, Changaripashe says uh, they should not associate closely with those who are not in the Dharma. And I'm just going to read his words here. We shouldn't misinterpret this to mean not associating closely with others such that we cannot eat, talk, or spend time with them. Instead, it means that we should not adopt their views and behave like they do. Basically, why do we take refuge in the Sangha? We take refuge in the Sangha because they are the ones who can accompany us on the path and help us to practice properly. If we stop having a close association with the Sangha members, then we won't have refuge in the Sangha who can help and support us. If we associate with others, then we start taking on their ways. That is the reason why we take refuge in the Sangha and associate closely with them. Otherwise, refuge in the Sangha is pointless. And I think this there's a really uh, simple way to think about this, which is, you do your best to hang out with your Dharma brothers and sisters in one way or another, you know, because um, they're the ones who are trying their best to cultivate the same things you are. And it's not to say that the people who aren't are bad people. Uh, they're suffering and they want to be happy just like we do, you know, and in fact, knowing that they don't uh, have the right methods, you know, and knowing that they're continually doing things to create their own suffering as we do, um, is a cause for compassion you know it's like it's a cause for forgiving rise to the bodhicitta that we need to attain buddhahood so none of this is to become sectarian or think that buddhists are better than anyone else it's just that we know that what we're trying to train in here is it hasn't come naturally for us yet you know like we've had to make an effort we've had to think about these things read about them try to make these habits so that we can see the benefit they bring. And it's not necessarily an easy path, you know. So it's good to have people around who've been there and help you know, can reinforce these, you know, these good ways of thinking about things, the right ways of thinking about things. So then the third group is, uh, the common group. Um, these are related to practice. And these are, for instance, um, once we know we should consider anything representing the Buddha, is an object of respect because it symbolizes the Buddha, and as we talked about before, this idea of the Buddha is this idea of our, our, you know, what we want to become. So when we see images of the Buddha of whatever quality, you know, it should inspire in us faith, and we should treat it with respect. And then in that, by extension, goes uh, in terms of the books and texts that we encounter because they're like the speech of enlightened beings, and also uh, to sangha members. Rinpoche says um, we should consider that anybody who helps us on the path of dharma even if only to a very tiny extent is a very special person and someone we have to respect because they are the ones who help us travel on the path to buddhahood and he summarizes the uh the he summarizes the benefits of refuge by saying um the immediate and ultimate benefits. The, the Im- immediate benefits are that we are protected from the sufferings of the three lower states. The ultimate benefit is that through taking refuge in the three jewels, we are protected from all the sufferings of samsara insofar as this will help us accomplish Buddhahood. And then the final aspect of this chapter is the Pradimoksha uh, precepts, uh, prati-moksha vows. We think of these, uh, Uh, We usually hear about these in terms of the usually just called the precepts, you know, and there's the four primary precepts are uh, not taking life, uh, not stealing, not uh, engaging in sexual misconduct and not lying. And then um, the fifth one is they call it the branch precept, which is uh, uh, forsaking intoxicants because it's the reason it's called a branch precept is because, you know, if you're you are using intoxicants, it becomes a lot easier to break the other four precepts. So these precepts can be taken in seven different ways, uh, according to, like, uh, monastics and lay people. Um, but this, this is another uh, thing that we do to try to... Uh, this is actually where the analogy I gave earlier about welcoming uh, bodhicitta as a monarch. Um, he uses it here as, like, one of the three... Um, uh, reasonings for taking vows. And, um, and actually what he says is, uh, we would not invite a great King to reside in a place where there is filth and which is unclean. The place should be clean and decorated with many ornaments. Similarly, the King of Bodhicitta cannot be invited to reside where our body, speech and mind are not free from non-virtue and are stained with the dirt of negative karma. Instead, Bodhicitta should be invited to abide where our body, speech and mind are free of the dirt and defilements. They're fully adorned with the moral ethics of abandonment. So those three, again, are the um, foundation for the cultivation of bodhicitta. And, um, I'd encourage you, like, the, obviously the meat of this chapter, so to speak, is the, uh, is the, the refuge vows. And, um, that is like a lot of practices, one that you can carry off the cushion with you. It doesn't have to just be in the mornings. And at night, um, and you can look, um, I would encourage you to look uh, at your mind in these moments where you experience any kind of discomfort and think about um, where you're going to go for refuge in that moment. You know, like what's something you can do? Like how, what can, you know, like one of the common suggestions would maybe be like the three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue slogan from Lojong you know like when we find ourselves in uncomfortable situations we can make the aspiration that uh whatever negative emotion we experience that our, our experience of that contain the negative emotion of all sentient beings that no sentient being need ever feel that again um and that uh we attain that all beings may attain buddhahood which is the freedom from that negative emotion um that's just kind of one way of uh looking at where we're um, placing seeking our refuge you know, because it happens all the time and just uh, correcting, uh, th- being aware of it and then correcting, you know, how we do it can be a really beneficial practice throughout the day as well as as on the cushion itself. So anyone have any
2: questions or comments? If not, it's about all I
1: have to say. And I would also uh, I will comment too that this is a good um, this is a great commentary on the uh, on the jewel ornament, but uh, there's also uh, more detailed ones like this uh, this one from Kempo Kunshuk Jalsen Rinpoche is another really common um, this is this the, the the commentary here by Trungpa Rinpoche is a little more pared down so this is a little bit more uh, detailed it's definitely thicker. And has a lot more, uh, it cites the sutras where things come from. So if you want to kind of take a deeper dive on the jewel ornament, uh, there's Kempo Kucha Galton's Rinpoche's Jewel Ornament. And then there's also another one that, uh, uh, His Holiness Akramapa wrote the foreword for and Ken Holmes translated called The Ornament of Precious Liberation. So let's, uh, Let's take a minute and and quietly dedicate the merit of our practice today and making the aspiration that we may attain Buddhahood so that we can establish all sentient beings
2: in that same state. Hey, thank you, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Tegsam Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts, at TemptingArts.com Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.